harmony and peace And the sun will once again rise up in the east Just, I doubt myself There's a, there's a complete cycle of doubt One that I go through when I'm working I think it's fairly common with the uh, creative mind A lot of cartoonists I think share this I usually start off a story excited, best intentions, a little anxious, a little nervous. Am I going to perform okay? I feel like every job I do, I've got to turn it up another another notch. Uh, I've got to make a name for myself. I've got to make a mark on whatever I'm doing. So I'm going in uh, full on. Start off doing thumbnails. Um, I wrestle. I, I get some some groove time going and I get some lag time going. I wrestle with them. But that's where the meat and bones is for me. I thumbnail those guys out pretty thoroughly. I really try to design a page in an interesting fashion and in a unique fashion. I want my pages from a distance when you can't see the, the, the drawing itself to look like mine. I look at Will Eisner, I look at Eduardo Risto, and I, I see these, these elements come forth. And, I, and Mignola, too. And I just see that you get immersed into their world before you even look at a, a pencil mark. So, yeah, usually um, I, I have in my mind to give myself five pages to feel like I'm doing okay. But as I'm drawing it, um, I just feel like every mark I make is a little off. Uh, and as I'm making it, I, I feel not every mark, but a lot of marks, I feel they're off. I, I, I don't see the totality of everything. I see the minutia of everything and, and don't feel like my game is on. I start off feeling like, this isn't so bad. You're doing pretty good. About halfway through, I'm like, I, I completely suck. I have just fucked this job up. I've got a deadline coming up. I just need to get it done. Uh, I muscle through it. I get it done. I'm like, there's some strikes. There's some gutters. Not too bad. There's some moments I'm ashamed of and some I'm proud of. It's at this point I, I need some validation. <laughs> So I send it to friends, other pros, who usually come back excited, brave reviews, nice job, you're doing well. A few weeks later, I feel like, yeah, I've done it. And then when it comes out in print, I hate it. I hate it. I understand these actors that don't want to watch themselves on screen. I, I don't want to listen to myself on this podcast. The sound of my voice just, it, oh, I can't do it. But I guess this is the cycle of doubt that, that we deal with. And uh, I'm going to talk today with Rick Remender about this cycle of doubt a little bit, about insecurities, about anxieties, about panic. Rick and I share these. Um, I think I've got it a little worse than, than the average person, and I think Rick does too. I think we share this. So uh, I think we have a nice conversation. Well, I know we have a nice conversation because I've already recorded it. But I think you'll enjoy it. A nice look into the psyche. Uh, you you spend your life trying to get somewhere with your career, with with whatever in life. You're trying to get somewhere, trying to get married, whatever your goals are. And then when you get there, you think that's going to be when I'm happy. But if you're not happy, getting there is not going to make you happy. So you've got to find happiness in the now. And that's something I'm, I'm noticing more. Right here in the moment, are you happy? Let's talk to Rick and find out.
I've said in the intro, Rick and I will talk about uh, obsession, um, trying to live in the now, living a life of trying to get somewhere, thinking and living in the future, and uh, whatever you're working on, how obsessive that can drive you to be. And uh, uh, it makes me wonder, have I always been like this? Uh, is this just something that, that has come out since my art career has kind of taken off the way it did? And uh, I think back to my childhood. And uh, when I was probably the ages 13 through 17, I was uh, consumed consumed with skateboarding this was the mid mid to late 80s and um that's all i did i i would skateboard all day and then i draw at night and that's all i cared about i i had a crew of friends and we did it every day together i took my skateboard with me everywhere i went uh, I guess you could say this was an obsessive behavior, but I, I just, I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed it that much. Uh, I started out doing it just for fun. When I met up with these crew of guys that lived near me, <clears throat> excuse me, on uh, what was, I think it was called Midas Court, and we kind of called ourselves Team Midas. I mean, this is when Pal Peralta was releasing future primitive and search for animal chin and there was all these skateboard competition videos we would order through thrasher magazine or my friend donovan had had a collection from when he lived in arizona and we could just spend before we'd skate we'd spend some time watching these videos they were inspiration we'd try all the tricks we saw and and i got pretty good Uh, i i think um you know, in our crew, I was one of the best. And I don't think that's me being arrogant. I think that's me being honest. And I have a problem <laughs> at admitting to when I'm good at something because I feel like it comes off as someone just being arrogant. Most of the times when people are telling you they've done something well, it's just arrogant. It's just covered up in securities. And I don't think that's the case here. I truly think I was... I was pretty damn good. I know everywhere I went, people stopped and watched. And uh, I loved it. I I loved it. I was a street skater, not a ramp skater. So this crew, Team Midas, my boys from back in the day, Donovan White, who was an artist, still is, lives in Tucson, doing gallery art, doing pretty damn well from what I can see. Um, I had another buddy, Ty Russell, uh, Todd Brown, Chris Mack, and Danny Gutierrez. This was the crew. And Danny was really good too. But Dan w- was a little older and it was a little more casual for him. I remember he got he got a girlfriend. Pretty sure she was like a cheerleader chick and she ended up going out with with a skateboard dude like Danny and he got he got into the party scene. And he didn't skate as much as all of us, but he did skate with us. And everyone was so cool and so fun to hang out with. And we'd film ourselves and we'd have a lot of fun. And um, 
I, I don't remember what video it was uh, that that we had been watching, um, but there there, and I don't remember who did this trick. I want to say it was probably Jesse Martinez. Might have been Tommy Guerrero. Maybe Mark Gonzalez. I'm going to guess it was one of these three. They they were like the top three street skaters back then. And um, whoever it was did this trick um, where they would stand on one hand on the street with their board in the other hand up by their waist. Uh, they'd split their legs like scissors, throw the board through their legs, catch it, before it hit the ground, put both legs back on the board and land it. And it just blew our minds. I mean, by this point, I was doing ho-hos, which is where you do a handstand and the board's on your feet. Uh, I could do one-armed sad plants, two-armed sad plants, where the board's at an angle on your legs and you're on one hand and then two. But uh, all, all these tricks, uh, I, I took two. I had a, a childhood where I was never great at organized sports. I didn't enjoy organized sports. I was a really small kid. And, you know, we played them all the time in the neighborhood. And football, I just got squashed. I mean, I remember just getting destroyed. And the, the big kid on the block, when he tackled me, he just sit on me. He thought it was so funny. I, I was helpless. I couldn't move. Um, I did enjoy basketball, uh, being a short Jewish kid. I don't think there's much of a future in that for me, but I did enjoy it. Uh, I was okay at it. Nothing great, but probably the sport I was best at. Um, I have a good story about that. I'll tell another time. But gymnastics was uh, it was natural to me. I had a, a a good amount of upper body strength, and I didn't weigh very much. And my lower half, um, I, I was not terribly strong there. I was smaller in the legs and bigger, broader at the shoulders. So uh, gymnastics I took to pretty naturally. And when we had it in middle school, I, I took to the pommel horse and the rings, you know, all that stuff. But I really enjoyed the pommel horse. You could get moving and do tricks and all that was fun. This was when I was about probably 11. And uh, the gymnastics teacher was very encouraging. And they decided they were going to put on a gymnastics show. And uh, I was going to be the pommel horse guy. So I was excited about that. About a week before that, I broke my collarbone. Another story for another time. So I couldn't do it. So I guess that kind of thwarted my gymnastics for a while. And then, then I found skateboarding. So this ability I had to, to be athletic in that type of fashion really paid off in skateboarding. So I became pretty good. And uh, we saw this trick. And I remember I was skating to Midas Court to have an afternoon session. I mean, literally, we did this every day after school for hours, every weekend, all weekend. And uh, Midas Court was pretty long, and it was it was uh, the entrance to the court was at the top of of like a hill, and the court went all the way down the hill. And I looked down the hill, 
And, and I could swear I see Danny do that trick where he threw the board through his legs. And I was like, oh, my God. What, what the hell? How did he do that? How? No, no, no. That can't be. I, 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 I got I to gotta be able to do that. And this this competitive side of me that, that I didn't know because I never felt, I guess, confident enough to be competitive kicked in. And I stood at the top of the court. I don't even think my friends knew I was there. And I just, I just started going for it. I just, I was determined to get land this trick. And I had just got a brand new board, and I'm pretty sure it was a, a Madrid street stick. I had so many boards back in the day. Um, this was a very short-lived board, and you'll learn why soon. So I, here I go. I just start getting up on one hand, tossing through legs, trying to catch it, trying to land it. I keep missing it. It keeps falling on the ground again, again, again. The the nose, which is the part that goes through first, just starts chipping, chipping, chipping. So I start throwing it tail first. Then that starts chipping away, just chips of wood falling off every time I miss. I don't know how long I was up there. Uh, I wanted probably a good hour, hour and a half maybe. And... And I landed it. Oh, I landed it. And that's when my friends saw me. And they, they I remember they all went kind of nuts. And uh, I skated down. And I did it. And then Danny did it. And then Danny was pissed. I could do it. And I was pissed he could do it. But Danny was the older, cooler cat anyway. He had a girlfriend who was hot. At least he had that. I didn't. So let me have it, Danny. So... Uh, that that makes me realize I was obsessed. I mean, what I did at the top of that court was was pure obsession. I don't think I had a frustration. I remember just getting more and more frustrated. My arm was wearing out. Everything was tired, but nothing would stop me. I, I was probably knew I was going to be home late, which would have got me in trouble. But I was obsessed. I did not enjoy the journey of learning that trick. And that was one of the few memories I have of skateboarding where I, I wasn't I wasn't having a good time. I was so driven and focused that all I cared about was getting this trick down. And and I, I think that has a lot to do with with uh, some of the issues I talk about on the podcast, myself and, and other people, this obsessive nature to get better, to get a career going, to get recognition. And uh, you lose sight of the journey. You lose sight of the, the, the fun. Um, I also lost a skateboard. I did so much damage learning that trick that my deck was nearly useless. I could barely ollie. I had chipped away so much of the tail that the, there was almost nothing left. In order to ollie, you, you really had to lay back on the board. And, uh, you know, I was a kid. I didn't have money, and here I am needing a new deck. So I, I, my obsession cost me a, a deck. It cost me an afternoon of fun. Probably got in trouble for being late. Um... I think Danny thought I was a little crazy because of how obsessed I was with, with landing it. In the end, I got it, and uh, I loved doing it. And I had a lot of fun doing it from that point on. But if we're trying to live in the now and enjoy the process, that is not the way to go. And I don't want to sit here drawing all day in that state of mind. 
That is an unpleasant state of mind. It is, it is just pure obsession, which causes frustration. Your expectations are to perform 120% from the beginning, even though it's something you don't know how to do. So you have to learn how to do it. And the pressure of making it perform that high all the time is insurmountable. And it, uh, it sucks. It's pretty painful internally. And I do it to myself. So Rick and I talk about this theme. Um, so yeah, it cost me a skateboard. I luckily had a supportive grandmother. Everyone in the family thought the skateboarding thing was a fad and they saw how into it I got and, I think the family thought it was a little weird. Family trips everywhere we'd go. I just had it and I'd go off skating. But I loved it. My grandmother was supportive of anything I was passionate about. So um, I I don't know how it unfolded, but she said she'd get me a new deck. And I got the new Christian Asoy Mini street deck. First day I had it, I snapped it in half doing an ollie. It's a piece of shit board. Uh, so that's that. That's my story for today. And here's Rick Remender. Started Ink Pulp Podcast. I'm here with Rick Remender, hey buddy. Hey, buddy. And uh, today, I want to get deep. I want to talk about anxiety and insecurity because I'm plagued by these things, and I think we have a lot of the same feelings. Don't and drag me down into your cesspool of sadness, dude. I'm. I don't know anything about either of these I topics. I want you to make me feel better about myself. That's cool, Sean. I mean, I judge you secretly for your your ability to expose yourself like a raw nerve and talk about these topics. So right. well, this would be a fun, a fun conversation as I sit here and silently judge you. Go on. Okay. Well, so I, I have these issues. I, I'm not sure where they come from. And uh, I want to talk to you about... I know it happens at cons a lot. It gets amplified. And with San Diego coming up, the feelings stir up. But outside of cons, it's 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 there. Uh, drawing. But anyway, it's it's always there. So with with your you, where do, where do you think this comes from? Well, I didn't confess to having any of these feelings. No, yet. no, no. I'm telling you, you have you to you draw have this them. out. I'm telling you, you have them. Oh, I do have them. Um, well, I think that for one, the conventions and things like that, a lot of the time we're working by ourselves, um, totally secluded and kind of sequestered. And it's almost like going to your workplace, but you only go four or five times a year, but you sort of hyper condense all of the strange emotions and, um, and politics and, and high schoolosity of it all down into this, this condensed hashish that you, that you smoke into your brain and it sort of inundates you with all of the anxiety and all the insecurities and all of the, all of the things that most people deal with day in and day out in a regular job, you get to condense that and, and, and mainline it, I think. So 
the shows, while they're fun and it's great to see your friends, you're also dealing with you know you don't the people you work for who you don't see that often, in a, and you see them in a in a you know you're seeing them in a social setting, but it's also a setting where you might not you might not be entirely um, you might have had a few drinks, your guard is down, you're still you know you're trying to be guarded, you don't want to be totally yourself because then you might offend somebody. Um, there's just this there's just this this um, it, it, it's just the soup that you drop yourself into that you're not normally accustomed to. And yeah, I think that the shows can... It, it amplifies it. But I, I, I have it outside of the shows. Do you have it outside of the shows, just in day-to-day life? Well, I'm, I'm like... A, I, I've been described as a coin that once flipped will either land uh, on, on quivering insecurity or raging ego. Um, and that, that sort of oscillates day by day. So, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, has that been your whole life? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Like, does it extend beyond the, the creative process? Um, sure. I mean, personality wise, I've, I, I definitely got a bit of the bipolar in me. So, you know, it's, it's up or down. The, finding the middle is always the trick, but I think, um, you know, like this is entertainment and you're being judged <laughs> On a, constantly being judged by a, a, a you know a large audience and, and editors and other creators, and you're out there. You know it's not it's not a job where you have to worry that your two bosses in office are the ones who you have to impress. You have to keep a lot of you know a lot of plates spinning, and that can lead to a lot of anxiety because your livelihood is on the line for right. something that is you know let's face it, it's subjective. Do you, I I feel this is pretty common. Amongst the creative community, I know there there are some people I, I don't see any of it in them, and maybe it's I don't know them, or maybe they just cover it. Maybe they actually don't have it. Um, but that's something I, I have people like Scotty Young I want to talk to because he seems at complete peace with everything in life. Hmm. So I'm going to talk to that with him. Yeah, it probably comes down to a lot of just the core of who you are, and we probably find it a lot in comics. <laughs> oh. Excuse me. <laughs> we find we probably find it a lot in comic books because uh, I don't know. I think that um, you know I spent a lot of time alone. Even when I was you know um, by the time I was eleven and I found skateboarding and punk rock, I had um, uh, I, I, I was outdoors a lot and enjoying my life. But my nights were still spent you know at home reading. But for for a lot of my life before that and in and, and, and years subsequent, I think that I've spent probably more time alone than most people, as probably a lot of comic book professionals have. Mm-hmm. And you find a lot of introverted personality types. Um, you know, I, I did a, I read an article about this not too long ago about introverts versus ambiverts versus extroverts. Right, and right. I, I'm, pre- I'm, pre- I'm an ambivert. I'm right in the middle. Right, and this is the first I've heard that term, and I think it fits me perfectly. Mm. So expl- explain what that. Well, yeah, you know, it's just it's just it's just somewhere in the middle. You're not you're not entirely frozen in social cer- in settings. Um, you're fine to have social time, but it's limited. You know, you can only have it so much before it sort of overwhelms your senses. Whereas extroverts, like our friendly Lowridge, um, they feed on the chaos of a crowd of people right. and the dynamics that, that that bounce back and forth. Whereas introverts, that hurts. It's just too much for them to to mentally process. Um, and they tend to be more thoughtful people, not that extroverts aren't, you know, they say that guys like Bill Clinton, there's a whole list of really very successful and prominent people of high intellect are also extroverted. But mm-hmm. I think that the, um, but that's not Lee. No, Lee's a dumb, dumb. <laughs> um, well, let me ask you this with skateboarding for me. Um, 
just like comics, um, there there was an insecurity. I don't know if you had like a, a little local competitive community with skateboarding, like trying to work towards amateur sponsorship. But I, I became obsessed with trying to be better and better and better, and and you know feeling insecure about. It. The, how did I look going in that bowl off that sure. ramp? And <clears throat> sure, uh, that, that's everyone. I mean, it, uh, that's the human condition. I think that 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 sense of competitiveness is just ingrained in us. It's a you know, you want to have you want to have the most women to plant your seed. You want to have the most food to feed your children. You want you you know the reptilian brain sort of demands that you go out and be competitive. Intellectually, you can see that it's not the most healthy choice. But that putting yourself in those situations in a com- competitive way, it can really be detrimental to the enjoyment of anything you're doing. And I definitely found that. I found that in almost all facets of life, including skateboarding. You know, there was always the dude who was, you know, pulling off shit that you were too frightened to even, even attempt. Right. Well, that's leading into my next next idea I want to address is can you find – and that's kind of what I'm trying to, like what all these podcasts have, are, are going around. I, I turned 40 recently and I'm really trying to find happiness and peace in Con- day-to-day life. Contentment. Yeah, yeah. So is that possible for you? Have you found it? No, and I probably won't. I'm probably too broken to be content. And, and I try. And all of the all of my background... And all of the philosophy that I uh, uh, gravitate towards is all about, um, you know, sort of a um, a, 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 a Buddhist desire, you know, a, a quest to do away with desire. Desire is right. the root of all suffering, and contentment comes from having enough and knowing you have enough. And um, there's always the fear then when you have enough that you're going to lose it. <laughs> and right, so that, right. it's like a snake eating itself. I know plenty of people that are content and um and I, I'm I'm pretty envious of them. I think that for me, um the uh uh the external validation thing is something that I try not to turn to. You know, working in entertainment you kind of have to have some sort of sense that people are enjoying your work. Um but, but I mean, I did this for many, many, many years when nobody was enjoying anything or gave a shit about anything I was producing. And you have to find at the same time, you have to find that that internal tenacity and wherewithal to like to to weather through that and keep fighting it. Right. Um, but it, that is, never really that that's that's an entire that's an entire different com- compartment than the insecurity. And the insecurity is always there, and I think the insecurity sort of probably leads to the inability to find contentment because you're always worried about when that hammer is going to fall. So is it a is it a healthy thing that helps you creatively? And getting rid of that insecurity is, is that do you, do you see that as threatening? The insecurity, I think, forces me to put in more time on my scripts, um, to never be complacent, to never, to never. Uh, there's so many feelings of rivalry and, and animosity from from you know uh, other sources that it forces me to make sure that this isn't just an ego-driven sort of endeavor and that what I'm doing is for the art. And it's, it's, I think the insecurity feeds that. The insecurity, you know, sort of, it sort of pushes you to make sure that you're not hacking anything and that every project, you did the very best you could to make sure that it was as good as you can make it. Right, right. Um, and that, like, I, I, that's something I, I, I understand completely and I will always have that. But what I'd like to have is... Like the, the, it seems like there's a healthy 
level of insecurity that that helps push you to be better and do better. And I almost I, I almost feel like using the word insecurity might might be wrong because it it makes it sound very negative when it's a very positive influence. But there's there's that insecurity that drives way deeper than that that makes day to day life at times really hard to relax. Sure. Yeah. High and, anxiety, like going back to what you right. were starting this off with. And I live in a state of high anxiety. And um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely something that I wish I could turn off. But, you know, at the same time, how much of that crazy mixture is why I was able to persevere for right. a decade when all the signs in the world said people aren't interested in, in the kind of things you want to do. Um, people aren't interested in a, in a skate punk comic. People aren't interested in Monster Mash or any of the you know pulp science fiction, mm-hmm. um, you know, or, or the way you're presenting it, or any or your art, or any of the things that you're trying to do. Um, you know, the 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 ability to to get through that. Who knows what what mixture of anxiety and um, insecurity and, and fighting that insecurity? You know, like I, I, I get what you're saying. It would be very nice to find a place where the anxiety could get turned down. Um. Just to make life, yeah. make it make you able to enjoy the day to day. I've heard a lot of comedians uh, talk about depression and how a lot of them were very afraid to uh, take meds because they felt if they numb down the depression, then their edge and their their voice is lost. But I've yeah. heard many of them um, get on meds and and. They, they get better and it's almost – they talk a lot about the disease of depression making you think that and it, how, how crazy this disease is that it can convince you not to help yourself. Sure. Yeah. I mean I know that I definitely fear <clears throat> um, meds um, in terms of – I don't know how much of the crazy sauce makes my voice interesting as a writer. And so you do definitely fear playing monkeying with that. I know that for me, fear agent was, I think, um, fear agent could have just been a, a, a bubblegum pulp sci-fi, you know, um, spaceman fighting tentacles and, and, you know, rocketing through adventures. But the time that I was doing fear agent, I know that my depression was at uh, an all time low <clears throat> from about 2004 when I had given up on comics and made my mind up, you know, I was going to give it one last try. And fear agent was amongst the seven books that I put together to do that one last try. And your depression was at a low at this point. I mean, it was at a, at a high, but uh, okay. low. It, oh, oh, you know, oh I, I got you. It, I got you. it was. Um, I was in. in, in a you low. had hit the bottom. Yeah, I mean. Um, I had, you know, ter- I had quit quit jobs at Electronic Arts and Fox and Warner Brothers in order to continue to try and do comic books, and walked away from lucrative lucrative careers with four hundred one ks and health benefits to keep doing this. And you know, had drawn thousands of pages and inked thousands of pages and, and written thousands of pages, and couldn't find my my, my footing in the industry. Um, and that that was what what fed a lot of the tone of Fear Agent. And I think it might be it's it, it might be why it's interesting. Because, you know, Heath as a character, I tried to explore a lot of things that had gone on in my life and a lot of relationships that I had and to bring that to the character. And it's definitely not the most uplifting of stories, but I wonder had I had I been jovial and everything was working out great, if that book would even exist in the format. Right. So there's, right. Just, there's, there's just no way to know. So 
do you now, with all the success you've had, do you feel better? No. <laughs> and I mean that 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 because I I don't think that's what I'm getting at with all this. I I I don't know how to feel better if you can. And then, like we said, if you get on meds, or, or is that just numbing it out? Yeah, or you know, like at what point? I know that. Um I have a range of emotional issues that go back to, to childhood and that, that stems from a lot of my insecurities uh, or that's where they stem from. Um, you know, and that stuff, it's interesting because you have kids and it's so cliched, but you really do start reliving your childhood. Right. And that has unearthed a lot of, you know, a lot of what my frustra- frustrations were growing up as a kid um, in a household where my dad was an addict and my mom was holding the family together and things were a little rough. So I do wonder. So that that shaped your anxiety and insecurity. It definitely shaped the insecurity, you know. Um, and then the fight for me has always been to try and um, to try and look anything in the face when it, you know, when it when when all signs point to you know you're not wanted here or this isn't going to work for you. In terms of, I always saw. I think the comic book industry almost became sort of a a, a meta. Um, you know, experience for me that, that it, the industry itself sort of represented rejection, and um, I really want to make comic books. I, I love making video games, and I love uh, I love animating, but I want to write and draw comic books, and that wasn't something I was going to stop. So, the rejection from the industry for so many years, <clears throat> um, I, I wonder. You know, I overcompensated pretty greatly given the amount of years that I dumped into to fighting that out. So you do start to wonder if you would have even bothered with that. I know plenty of very talented people who had the same sort of feeling of rejection or that it wasn't going to work for them who quit. That might have been a healthier, more normal choice to make and one that would ultimately be healthier for them in their day-to-day life. But Are these people you, you keep in touch with now? Yeah. Are they happy? Yeah, most of them are content. They don't have that same gnawing need to to do something or to prove something or to overcome something. They they uh, they're they're content people. Did and they leave art or just comics? No, they just went back and started doing illustrations for magazines or or um, um, you know doing their own indie books or going. A couple went back into video games. A couple went into storyboarding. Um, you know, more lucrative careers that are in industries that are not as quite as just, you know, comics is dysfunctional. It's a broken industry and so much of it is predicated upon perception of value versus any sort of real inherent quality, uh, you know, high quality is not really the gauge of your success. It's a, it's a pig in a poke. It's, you know, you, you catch lightning in a bottle with a, with a bunch of radioactive turtles at the right time that becomes a cartoon. Right. It's, um, you know, uh, and, and it's something that, um, because of the dysfunction in the system itself and how it's set up, um, they probably made the better decision. They've made more money. They're less, you know, they have, when their day's over at five o'clock, they go and, and hang out with their kids or do shit that's not sitting at the computer. Whereas I have been at my computer or my art desk pretty much nonstop since I was 21, grinding this right. out to right. make this work. And then it becomes so all important and all consuming yeah. that you have, there's so much. I don't. I don't think people realize how how much work goes into a single comic book. And no, no, and especially when you're not getting paid. You know, like right. especially when you look at all the creator-owned work that, that, that gets done. You have to see that's a labor of love that somebody to take air and create. You know, 
not one, two, three, but to create like 20 graphic novels of work when the numbers are not coming back and saying this is good, you have to believe that it's good and you have to believe in yourself and fight through that. And that probably comes from the unhealthy place because who else would put themselves through that shit right. rather than a, a person who's in some way kind of, kind of fucked up. So see, I have a couple questions now. Seeing these, these other people have left and have they're financially more, more successful or more comfortable and more content in life, what drives you to stay in the abusive relationship of comics? The end result. <clears throat> you know, when, it, when a comic works, that's all I care about. Right. When I'm working with, you know, when I'm working with somebody who I click with, where our, 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 our sensibilities line up and we're making a story happen out of thin air mm-hmm. that I'm proud of, I feel great, you know, like I enjoy that, that, that creative experience so much that that was, you know, beyond all of the other psychological, you know, uh, uh, beyond all, beyond all the angst and bullshit, you know, I think that it's the, the driving force here is the desire to tell story and in video games and animation and all the other jobs that I've had. There is nowhere else you have the purity of intention as when you're working with an artist who your sensibilities line up with and creating something out of thin air that's yeah. going to go out and be read by you know ten to a hundred thousand people. I mean, that's where else can you do that? Yeah, and in in the end, I, I do feel that there's a, I have a complete love for the medium, and uh, the industry and the medium are two very different different animals. They are. They are, and um, um, adherence to craft and love of the book is something that. Um, you know, you can make yourself fairly unpopular, as I probably have, by fighting people to to meet your standards. And um, I made my mind up a long time ago that I, I didn't care so much about about being popular as making sure that I felt good about the books with my name on them. And that's the end. That's the end of it all. You know, like the end of it all is that book. And if you compromised for uh, an artist or or an editor or a publisher. And made something, which I have, you know, compromised all three of those in the past and made things that I'm not 100% behind. In some cases, I'm ashamed of them. That is counter to what I'm here to do. Right. And well, so- I will say of all the creators um, I know and have met, you certainly have a high level of integrity. And while you may you may have done a few things you're not proud of, you're in the minority. Um, I'd say a lot of people would would say that I, I've just done this or, or done that and haven't fought the fight to keep your vision. So I think that's that's a, that's a nice thing you have going for you. And while you, it may you say it makes enemies or whatever, I think the product is better in the end because of it. Well, I think Neil Gaiman did a graph where he said to survive as a freelancer, he took the the three most important things are quality of work, timeliness. And if you are a pain in the ass or not, and the three things converge and you can be, you have to be two of the three. Mm-hmm. You can afford to not, if you're, if you're all three, you're the perfect freelancer. Apparently. I don't think good things come from complacency or agreement. I right. think good things come from two people who, um, are willing to argue out to get to the core of something. Mm-hmm. And that is perceived in a lot of circles as being, 
confrontational or difficult. To me, good story and good art doesn't come from just doing your first draft and everybody just saying, off you go. It comes from you know people who are invested in beating it to death and making sure that is this the best decision? And you have to then justify your, your choices. And, and So I, I was always okay with the idea that um, – that I might be perceived as difficult to work with, provided that people didn't think that it was just um, a, a need for conflict, but could see that it was it was for um, it was it was for love of the craft and for a positive end result. Is that a perception you have of yourself, or do you have do you know that this is a reputation you have being difficult to work with? I don't. I I I I imagine that that I am unlikable. And that in most cases, people find me to be difficult to work with or, um, or, or, or worse still, they don't respect me and think I'm difficult to work with. But um, what, what I'm getting at, is that, is that your insecurities and anxieties playing in your head or is this a, a, a response to something, to evidence? Uh, there's enough evidence, you know, but there's, there's also probably, you know, it's probably 50, 50. The other half of it is probably the, the insecurity and the, you know, I, I, uh, I, I grew up in a household with a very, uh, angry father who had had, you know, who was, you know, he got sober when I was 10 or 11, but until then things were very rough. And, and even after then, um, and that I think can, can lead to a sense of, um, well, it doesn't – in my case anyway, it, it led to a sense uh, – I, I, I didn't have a lot of value in myself. And mm-hmm. I, had to, I had to find through punk rock and through the things that really spoke to me how to discover that and how to build myself up and not take shit. And I think that sometimes there can be an overcompensation for that that comes off as uh, an inappropriate intensity or, mm-hmm. or abrasiveness. Um, because I do tend to – once I feel cornered or once I feel – that it's no longer uh, a civil conversation or debate. I, I, I escalate things a little bit. So there's definitely a component that I've learned about myself that, that you know, I, I am assuming is, is, a, is a reputation I have. It's nothing that, you know, uh, I, I have any hard, hard evidence of. Right. You mentioned earlier about seeking validation, not you specifically, but all of us, seeking validation um, from other creators with the work we do. And that's something I relate to very intensely. Um, but getting back to what you were just talking about with your father, do you feel this is a a well you're trying to fill, getting this out, external validation because of what had happened to you for the first 10 years of your life? Sure, you want the world to say you're good because he wouldn't. No, I get that. Um, and that was definitely a component until I became sort of self-aware in my mid-20s. Mm-hmm. Um, if it still is, it's pretty deep down. I think that th- for me, the validation comes from the reviews are meaningless to me. And mm-hmm. honestly, I have gotten to a point where um, I know enough about what I'm doing that, that most people's opinions are meaningless to me. Like when people didn't like Frankencastle, I didn't care. It didn't right. matter to me. The people who loved it, loved it. The people who hated it, hated it. And I knew why they hated it. Um, and I didn't, I didn't agree with them. So uh, in, in the cases where <clears throat> you're, you're proud of the work and you know the work is right, that's all I need anymore. And I, I know if it's a good page. I know if I wrote a good story. I, I, right. I know if, if, it, if the time was put in to give you an emotional uh, – any kind of emotion out of it. You is know? that a more recent discovery on your end, being able to say, I know this is, this is good. I, I know I did a good job on this without needing hearing people say it? I think Frankencastle, that Punisher thing Tony and I did, was really where I, I started to try and 
where I became aware of it and I became aware of the fact that like, no, wait a minute. Fuck you. I, you're wrong. This is amazing. We're taking what, what, what gave you the awareness and the strength to, to be able to do that? It was, the, it was fighting back. I realized I was fighting back in the letters column and I was responding on Twitter and I was fighting back and trying to say, no, you're wrong. This is, this is inventive and big and fun and this is what comic books should be. The Punisher is fucking boring. Um, you know, Garth's done some amazing work as did Jason Aaron later and there's been good stuff with the Punisher but at the point that I took over the book there was just nothing I, I didn't want to do another story of this guy running through the streets you know, mowing down Mexicans selling dime bags right. you know, it was just this, this you know, I, death wish can only take you so far and so I think that as I was fighting people and debating about this I realized like, oh, I just don't care what you think Did did this ha- coincide with anything in your personal life that that I don't I don't know if it, it, it happened around the birth of one of your children or something happened in life that that grounded you? It might have. I mean, that was that was around the time my my daughter was born. So I don't know if that has any connection to it. I've never thought about that. Because um, that's something I, I certainly felt when when I had my first child was was a, a, a deeper sense of of who I am and and life just changed. And I'm wondering if, if that's... Your priorities f- shift and your focus on things definitely shifts. You know, where your attention goes shifts and, and where your heart is. And the work is still very important, but the work becomes a thing that provides for these, these you know, these kids that you have and love so much. So there might have, there might have been, there might have been a, a factor, you know, there might have been a, a, a component of, um, is of it- that. Is it safe to say they've grounded you, um, made you feel some of that, some more peace inside that you didn't feel before them? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, it's definitely life-changing. And um, again, when it shifts your priorities, when all you have is this thing to obsess on, which is career, 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 um, your kids become a new thing and they become a more important thing. Right. And, um, you know, I, I still probably work way, way more than I should. Um, but now it feels like it's for something. It's for them. Right. Like, I might not have seen them in the last couple of days that much, but I know that they're with their mother, you know, and, and, and that they're happy and that they're enjoying their life and I'm providing that for them. Right. So there is that extra, there is that extra incentive to, uh, to strive for success and financial reward from your work. As long as you're not pandering or changing your creative intention, um, and boy, what a great mix if you can do that. Right. And I, I feel like I'm, I feel like maybe I'm there. I, yeah, this, I like talking about this because, um, before I had had children and even after children, I, I just heard from different creators that children do nothing but destroy the artist and people. And I've found the opposite to be true. So talking to you about that. Yeah, I don't, uh, I feel like, um, the work I've done since having my kids is the stuff that people have responded to the most, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, fear agent, you know, is the thing that I think built my career. But, um, the thing, the, the things that really took off at Marvel were Frankencastle and X force and venom. And, and those are all things I've written while, since I've had kids. So I definitely don't feel like it's changed my art. I feel like if anything, maybe the importance of making good art is higher because I've, I've picked this, this career where, as a writer, we have an expiration date on our foreheads. You know, people will at a certain point in three or four years figure they've seen enough of me 
whether or not my work is is floundering or not, and they'll want me gone. You know, and that's not true for every single writer, but it, it's pretty common. So that's that's in the back of your head. Sure, and you've picked this 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 uh, you know this career lacks stability. It just lacks stability, um, mm-hmm. and so having kids sort of forces you to remember it's worth the fight to make sure that the book is good. It's worth the fight to make sure that what you're doing is the best you can and to not rest. There is no rest. Right, right. You know, there is only good work. And that's where, um, you know, if I fail or trip or, or stumble, I'll know, you know, other than a few blemishes, I've done the very best I could in any situation I was in and fought it as hard as I could to make it good. And now instead of doing it for validation or to overcome a sense of um, rejection or insecurity, I'm doing it to make sure that I can provide for these kids that I love. And that definitely, you know, that definitely props you up and is a better, is a more healthy motivator than those other, you know, negative emotions that can often lead to people uh, self-destructing. And, you know, I think that, that um, it also grounds you and makes sure you don't become an egotist if you let it. Right. You know, right. You, you realize that the, that, you know, yeah, the, the kids will the kids, ground you real quick. They they, they do, and um, you're just dad. Yeah, I guess that's that's sort of a non-connector. The um, egotism aspect of it, I think, is more connected to uh, insecurity than being validated too much. And people without a philosophical base allow that to feed into their their that hole you mentioned. It never fills the hole, but they they then flip they go the other way where they <clears throat> they go you know i know i've known i was the, the greatest all along and now they know you know and they stomp around and, and right. throw, throw baby tantrums <laughs> right. all right let's talk about balance now, now that we're on on the family uh, i find i mean working in in this industry is such a unique and difficult lifestyle it's difficult i think particularly on on the spouses who don't understand the the way the, the the way things work when you, when you're under a deadline, and how the time demands can be intense. Do do you feel you've you've got a good balance going between work and family? Balance is the key. Um, these days, no. Um, I have. I wake up, I get, I do a couple hours of email, I start writing. I, I try and take off work from 6 to 8 every night to have dinner with the family and do a dance party with my kids or watch a movie or something. Uh, I, I read them books to put them to bed. And that's as much as any dad can do on a weekday. Yeah, yeah. I try to make sure I take Sundays off to be with them and go to right. the beach or go to the park or swim or whatever. Um, but it's not, it's not perfect, and I definitely would like more time with them. But at the same time... As the sole breadwinner in the family and the person who's propping it all up, um, it's difficult not to with with fun projects that excite you. It's difficult to say you know to to not take them out of uh, right because you're going to need diapers, you're going to need food. Yeah, and so you know, I, I think it's a sacrifice in terms of time. Like um, you know, my wife is raising our kids, and that was always very important to us that we. That we not have our kids raised by strangers, where we're, we're not the, the couple who is hiring someone to raise our kids. Right. You know, my wife is the one pouring the love into them and getting them to yeah. read before the, you know, well before they should. And that's exactly how, how we did things, um, and we built up a substantial debt doing that. Now she's back to work. We're we're, we're chipping it away, but uh, there was a, a time where it it caused a rift. 
in in the marriage i was consumed with working 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 and sure. she's consumed with kids kids kids. kids 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 and and you start to grow grow apart um you, you, it become it's a grind you know getting the kids getting the kids my, my daughter is three my son's a year and a half um and that those are tough you know we had them close together it's tough yeah it, yeah it, you know when uh, danny always says when one person is solely responsible for one aspect of it it becomes overwhelming i'm overwhelmed with the financial burdens she's overwhelmed right with the that, that's a good way of putting it um you know and and there's there's, there's headbutting but we try and come back together and remind ourselves that you know this isn't forever and this is for the kids and right you know i think it's there's only so much you can take and, and we, all, we all do the best right i mean being where we are now like my, my kids are older and and while it was tough, we got through it, and uh, it's so much easier now. Yeah, so I, much easier now. I can. It gets easier. I can see with my daughter. It gets easier year by year. You know. Yeah. And and you know once she's once she's five and and he's three and a half and 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 we're through the gauntlet. I think that it will get easier. I think that um, the you know, gauntlet is the word. Yeah, I've, it definitely I've heard is. that word every time I've had this conversation. Yeah, yeah, and it's hard to you know nobody. Nobody who hasn't people who haven't had kids can't appreciate it. No, they don't. They don't know. But you know, it's um, it's worth it, and it's it's uh, you know, it's very fortunate that I've got the work to 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 provide you know this that we're not both grinding it out at the same time right. while we're paying right. you know, Susie down the street ten bucks an hour to just watch our kids and keep them alive while we're at work. Right. And when so you, you basically have one parent working to pay the babysitter, mm-hmm. that's how we saw it, and it made no sense. Yeah, and that's that's us too. That's that's where that's where we came back around um, and and decided to just you know fight it out this way. And you know, I, I remember when I was working in animation, there were a lot of guys who you know they worked and their wives worked, and they would tell me that they basically woke up, threw food in their kids' mouths, drove them to school, came to grind it out at the studio, left at six, got home, put food back in their kids' mouths, you know, threw them into bed, and did it all over again. And they never had any. And then on weekends, it was all catch up, and right. they had no time for anybody. And you know, that that's just the reality of that's how that's how it is for most people, and it's hardcore. And, for me, that was another one of the reasons I wanted comic books to work out is I didn't want to be stuck in a situation where that was thrust upon me and I didn't have a choice. You know, like in, in this job, provided I'm willing to work an 80-hour week, I can I can double my salary. Right. You know, I'm freelance. I can take on that extra book, provided I can keep the quality and keep it good, mm-hmm. I can make this make this work for now. And hopefully in a couple, two, three years, I can slow down and right. know, relax into like just three. Yeah, months. I, th- I think that that's a that's a very common theme. the The idea of what's it's worrisome to me. the The idea that you can grind, 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 get your career to a place where then you can back off a little, do quality work, but not have to work as much. Right. But from where I'm sitting, I would think you're there, and the fact that you're not there worries me a little bit. That there, that it's a there's no end to this road that that we think there is. Yeah, I haven't found it. Um, you know, because the reality is, is that the guy with the desk job probably has a four hundred one k that's building year after year. He's probably got you know things in place that lead to a more secure right. financial future. Whereas what we've decided to do doesn't offer any of that. Doesn't offer sick days, no vacation days. You you grind it out, you get paid, and, right? And that's just how it is. And that um, that's led me into the position I'm in in life now, where I have that job and the comic job, and I'm. Burned. I think I have a decent balance, but burned, yeah, and no, constantly behind on something. Yeah, no, I know what that's like. Um, 
So yeah, it's, it's tricky. I, w- I want to ask you um, about all, all the all of your creator own work before your 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 Marvel days um, as a writer. All that work you've done that you said that was your your last go, and it was all quality work. And these were all extremely interesting books, and they're they're beautiful. Just seeing them on your shelf as as I sit here and remembering these books. Um, but none of them, none of them hit the way you had hoped. Is there, is there a resentment towards the industry that built from that? Was there, is there resentment towards the industry or just resentment in you that, that this was quality work? What's the matter? Why didn't these sell? Well, you know, um, they did sell. I think that you know, fear agent mostly in trades. The numbers on the singles right. are always seven, eight thousand. Um, that, that we've sold a, a, a lot of trades in the subsequent years as people get hip to it, and now we're seeing a resurgence in science fiction comics where everybody's jumping on that bandwagon, and hopefully, people will go back and see when when right. nobody was doing this. You know, Rick Remender, Tony Moore, and Jerome Pena dumped their asses into it for six years. Right. Um, yeah, there is resentment. Yeah, I guess if I have to be totally honest, and I'm not going to politic my way out of this question. Um, there were a number of years there that I was doing things like, um, like strange girl and fear agent and, and working with guy and sorrow and, and shit. I mean, the list goes on and on triple X zombies. I was working with guys like Tony Moore, Jerome Pena, Kieran Dwyer, um, you know, Francesca Franca Villa, um, you know, uh, Paul Harmon, um, uh, you know, uh, and you're putting out interesting, what you feel is interesting personal work with great artists but it's not finding its audience. And this was at the heyday when, you know, I think when Civil War was coming out and all that right, stuff was right. really, you know, the center of everyone's attention. Um, so I'd say that, you know, um, you know, in 2004, I had been doing comics for six years while working day jobs in animation and video games. And I made my mind up. I was ready to quit. I was very, very disheartened. Um, I made the mistake of inking the Avengers for 10 issues, which no one can tell me didn't fuck me up for a long time because everybody I pitched knew me as the guy who inked the Avengers. Right. I mean, I've, at that point, uh, by 2004, I had penciled 4,000 pages, you know, <clears throat> where I'd only inked these, you know, these, these, these two books. But I was known as an inker, and that was very frustrating. And I was like, well, this industry is entirely based on perception of value. It's a new guy who comes in, and then five editors try and dr- jump on him to be the guy who found right. the new guy. And you're not the new guy. It doesn't matter how good you get. You're, you're always going to be this, this thing that, that went down these different roads to these people. And my fear of that perception, be it valid or not, um, led to me figuring that this was, this was a dead end. So I made my mind up in 2004 to give it one last try. Um, I lined up some penciling work at Dark Horse and Image um, with uh, one with Bruce Campbell, another thing with Brian Posehn and Jerry Duggan. And then I put together uh, six pitches for um, a book called Devolution. Uh, then it was Fear Agent, Strange Girl, Sea of Red, Last Days of American Crime, Nightmare. Um, and I, I think that there maybe, maybe the End League was in around then. So I put together these, these six, seven pitches and I started to send them out to artists and friends and build it up. And I just gave it my, my all. So while I was working the day job, I got home at night, went to my studio and worked until midnight, one in the morning, slept, did it all over again for years. Right. And the books got picked up. Nightmare went to IDW. Um, Image picked up three books. 
all of the books sort of, you know, uh, a few years later, um, uh, Barry at Radical w- put together a company and asked me, and I got Last Days of American right. Crime in there. Um, Mike Richardson picked up End League and Gigantic. Um, and so I, I was fortunate in that that last push for me paid off. Now, none of those books caught financial fire, and though most of them critically did very well. What, you know, what, what the fuck does that mean? You know, almost nothing. And so... Um, from 2004 to about 2008, I worked, you know, 80 to 100 hours a week on my day job and making my comics. Where at one point I was storyboarding from Russia with Love at EA during the day, penciling Man with the Screaming Brain for Dark Horse, writing Strange Girl, Sea of Red, Fear Agent, and Nightmare. And then I realized that if, if they weren't good, if these books weren't good, that this was all a waste of time. And some of them weren't. Some of them, there were compromises made. Some of them, there were choices that were made out of necessity. You're dealing with a book with no budget. You know, that's the other thing people don't see when they look at that is they'll judge you on it. And they don't know you made that with a couple guys. Nobody was getting paid. And you you put it together best you could. And of course, it might not be your best foot forward, but it was the very best you could do coming out of thin fucking air with no budget right and having to work other jobs and right. maintain a, and then and then you're just marriage. you're just at, and maintain a marriage you're just exhausted and fortunately danny is is always been very supportive and and you know got my back as we were doing all of this and was very patient and had always had more faith in me than i had so that always helped prop me up but um yeah i think that that's true of steph as well i, I think i need to do a podcast with the wives at some point <laughs> because they've put up with some craziness but yeah i mean they do and i know guys whose wives and girlfriends are not accustomed to this and you know they they do not have an easy life because of it right they're not they're not um they're not comfortable or used to the fact that the guy they're with is unavailable so much of the time because he's in the office grinding away to figure out how to, you know, draw the Eiffel Tower or, you know, whatever. (laughs) So, uh, so, uh, bitter, bitterness built through that, through that experience. Yeah, for sure. And I realized that that was becoming toxic. Um, that was becoming toxic. Like I knew if people would give me a budget and get out of my way, I could make a motherfucker of a comic book. Right. And I remember frustration, things like, you know, um, DC hired me to do the Atom, and I wanted it to be relaunched and fresh. And I wanted to get Jerome Pena on there mm-hmm. and, and Tony and come in and do a real crazy science fiction thing. And they weren't interested in that, you know, and they worked against me. They basically launched me after Gail Simone, having me do the tone that I had been doing in some of my other books, which was a lot different than what Gail does. Mm-hmm. And so no new readers come in at issue 21 on The Atom. Um, and the the tone prior, the people who had been reading it were Gail's fans, did not at all enjoy the change of, complete change of tone. Right. Um, Pat Olaf is a genius, is a great artist. But it wasn't uh, somebody I had a, a working relationship with, like I had it with Jerome and Tony at that point, and that was very frustrating. Um, and then they canceled the, they, you know, they some of the big ideas I had, they took them and said I couldn't do them because they were now going to do them in Superman. Um, they basically uh, then they canceled me by issue three. I knew I was canceled, and I had this ten issue outline. I had to cut down into five issues and it turned into a train wreck right the story has got a lot of good ideas peppered throughout but it's basically five stories being told and every month i had a new mandate no you can't do that nope now you're five issues nope change this and you know or you know telling me to kill a character that they didn't want around anymore but then the fans of gales on the book so that 
led to me being fucking furious. Like I was just done with comics. I just couldn't. And you know, you watch a lot of guys who catch catch some kind of fire after doing one indie book, right? And they're ushered right into right. You know, and, and people say like, well, you can't. You know, you can't be bitter about that. And I always said, fuck you. I can be as bitter as I want about that. Right. I've been doing this for a decade at this point, and I just can't get that fucking break where I can get one book with my boys and be left the fuck alone to make some quality. Right. And, right. And the, and the reason I asked about this is I, I had built up a nice bank of bitter and me from getting a, a miniseries at Wildstorm and not being able to get another job for 10 years. Sure. And what you're talking about, just watching people get these break after break after break and that bitterness builds. But is, is it gone now? Yeah, I don't, I don't feel the bitterness is gone. But I mean, I, I got rid of the bitterness before I was successful. I, mm-hmm. I got I got rid of the bitterness by watching other other writers who were also bitter. We would have these conversations, and it was it was um, it was toxic. Yeah, it's and very toxic. It, and it was it was I was spiraling down into this sort of um, pity party, and it was not it was not enabling me at this point. You know, four years after I was going to quit, and I'd given my life back to it. And now I'm in my mid thirties. Um, there was there was I realized you're in it now. This is what you're going to make work. You have not. You can't quit, and no matter you know, the upshot of having eaten so much shit up until that point was that I'd eaten too much shit to quit. Uh, if I was right. gonna, <laughs> if I was gonna, if I was gonna be, if I was gonna be hammer and make a rap song, it would be called "Too Much Shit to Quit." <laughs> um, I had eaten just too much. My belly was so full of shit, it had to pay out. Right. And right. If, and if I if I quit, if I let bitterness take me over didn't matter how good I was. Nobody was going to want to give me a break or work with me. Um, and uh, uh, so that was when, um, you know, that was, that was around the time Matt was doing War Journal. And um, they invited me to come finish out his arc and then eventually take over the book. And uh, I, showed, I showed Axel Jerome's work and um, Jerome came onto that book with me. And then I got Tony on there afterwards and got to turn the Punisher into something that I'm like – you know, pretty damn proud of. It's it's not perfect. There are some stumbles in there, but for um, for what it was, I feel like that was the first time an editor sort of uh, let me let me out of the cage, and, right? And, right. And, and you know, and 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 was open to all right. You know, you're good. You know, you're good with Jerome. All right, you're good with Tony. All right. And they gave you know Axel gave me John Romita Jr. to work with when I was killing killing the Punisher to turn him into Frankencastle and and Axel was supportive of the out of the box ridiculous shit that I wanted to do I don't know another editor who I come to Frankencastle yeah, with uh, and think, he champions it the way that Axel right did. he's he's amazing and he's great and thank God for him um, well it it seems um, while things were harder on you they're getting better and you're feeling better yeah. And uh, I guess it's all a work in progress. Uh, one thing I, I'm, I'm trying to start, I'll start it with you today, is the last question. I, I, don't, I don't even think I want to phrase it as a question. A statement and you respond. Punk rock, metal, and or hip hop. And what I'm trying to get to here is which of those three, I just find that in comics, I click with people based on one of those three genres of music and we all have a deep passion for at least one two some of us three yeah i dig all three pretty good but punk rock changed my life as they say you know punk rock and the diy ethics and the idea of 
of doing it yourself for the reason that I'm here. It's the reason I succeeded. It's the reason that I was. Uh, it's one of the things that helped me persevere and keep you know keep keep moving forward when things didn't seem like they were going to pay out financially. I would remind myself. Are, are you doing this solely for financial reward? And if you are, then you're a cunt. And right. if you're not, you know, so <clears throat> that was when I did things like Triple X Zombies or Blackheart Billy right. uh, or things that were completely off the cuff, ridiculous, but made me happy and Kieran happy and Tony happy and Harper happy. And we all got big smiles on our faces when we talked about them, you know, and it's what I launched my career with, with Captain Dingleberry, which was doing some ridiculous, you know, uh, homage to, um, to Frank Zappa in a comic book form. Um, uh, so, you know, while I'm a big fan of hip hop, um, it definitely speaks to uh, a struggle that I haven't d- endured. I've never, right. I've never been on the blacktop with a cop's foot on my head because I had a gold watch. Right. That's not something I identify <laughs> right. with, whereas I enjoy the shit out of listening to it and, 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 sure. and the art form. Uh, and, and for me, metal is just, is just fun. You know, right. like I listen to Amon Amarth when I'm like, you know, I need, I need to get pumped up and I want to hear Vikings, you know, go, oh, and, and <laughs> I, 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 uh, um, well, it, it, I, I don't gain any. I don't draw. I don't draw any personal inspiration from that. Whereas, whereas being a punker and, and punk rock entirely met, shaped my life. Right, metal's more more of a uh, physical response, whereas punk rock's more of an intellectual response. I, I find with punk rock, what it did for me and most everyone I talked to is is it it educated us and it helped us. It, it gave us a moral code that I think we all are very shaped by. For sure. For sure. There was, you know, part of that scene, there was a, a, a real ethical compass in place about not fucking people for money, about maintaining your integrity, about doing things because you love them, not for solely financial gain, about not grabbing for the bigger thing while stepping on someone's head, about just doing it the right way. And, right. Um, right. you know, there's a lot of, uh, I think there's a tendency in, in, <clears throat> in religious folk to imagine that they've got sort of a lock on ethics and morals. And it's always funny to talk to somebody who doesn't know anything about punk and is, is sort of they, – they, they look down their nose at it. They just see a yeah. kid with a mohawk screaming in a microphone. Right. I, th- I think the perception of what punk rock is and what it did for all of us is, is the opposite of what it is. Yeah, they, they don't understand it. And you try to explain it. And uh, for me, I remember reading you know do, all the Emerson and Thoreau stuff and the transcendental anti-conformity stuff from the turn of the century and studying that in school and realizing, well, this is – that's our punk rock. You know, right. going off to Walden Pond and living for seven years away from society and writing about the truth of life and, and really digging into, um, you know, a, a questioning questioning of not only authority but questioning all of the all of the structure of the society that, that's around us and questioning the the values. You know, it's like Ian Mackay would say. You know, um, I, I I I don't give a shit about uh, you know drinking or playing golf, right? Um, or um, um, you know fucking a girl and leaving the next day or you know I'll, I'll, and i remember seeing him interviewed in another state of mind and, and when i was 13 years old he was talking about boston you know he's like i just don't see much value in a bunch of people driving around in muscle cars screaming about fucking and drinking coors light you know like i just don't see a lot of value in this and i realized that punk rock was a was a thinking man's music yeah, and, right absolutely and for kids who who were questioning what was going on around them and felt like things maybe weren't quite right, right. here's the, a here's the, a voice of a of another kid during the Reagan era, which was a big part of it. Yeah, and, and here's the voice of another kid who's telling, who's basically telling you, in their own words, the stuff you've been thinking, and that you're not alone. 
in that it wasn't it wasn't produced by Sony because they thought they could make money. It was right. produced by kids who had something to say and liked fast music and running in a circle with their friends. Um, and there was a brotherhood, you know, behind it. Of course, right. that was toxic and tainted, and it just became a fashion statement later. Right, where it, it became tried to, what, it, what I it tried to against. explain to a punker in San Francisco once that all all he was doing was wearing an outfit that was that was put together by a girl in 1974 on the streets of London, trying to you know who went into an S and M shop, who was trying to buy the most outrageous, crazy shit she could to say fuck you to all the old women who were looking down their noses at her. Right, and you've turned it into a fucking costume. That kind of holds very little value anymore. Right. Um, it, it 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 lived a short life. Anyway, don't get me started. I'll rant and rant. Well, let me one. ask you. Let me. I'll I'll end on this question. Um, is there one or a few albums that that are the most important to you, or or your favorite? And which are they? You know, it's a staple, and I, I it's uh, I, I could I could dig deeper to try and show what a real punker I am, but I'll, I, I just think Minor Threat is the one, the go to, and it's never lost any power for me. Um, you know, I, I I was straight edge for a number of years, and and uh, <clears throat> see the value in that. Uh, eventually, I became too rigid and uptight, and stopped right. having fun, and wasn't able to have a, a drink when I was out with people, and it was sort of detrimental at a, at a certain point. But for a while there, it, it fed it fed a fire of um, of standing up and and making something out of yourself and just questioning what's just questioning what's sold to you as normal you know like i've always enjoyed enjoyed not being normal and being who i am because right. of what ian taught and i hate to talk about him like a preacher but you know shit you can still listen to all that stuff and, and absolutely questioning people's motives in, in in music you know are you here to make are you here to sell out stadiums or are you here to say something and and you know if it's all about money if that's all you're doing this for then there's no art in it and all you are is a fucking businessman right um and you know opening uh, discord records and never selling an album for more than 10 bucks never having a concert ticket be more than four bucks it's about the art and it's about the purity of intention and it's not about I need to get rich and try and, right. and try and uh, juke the system and build this cult of personality. And when I find myself still to this day sort of having to do self-promotion and, and drifting over into that world where I'm, um, I'm sort of forced to try and – and do PR for myself or build myself up, I realize what a cunty endeavor it is. And I always try and take a step back and make fun of myself and be, you know, at least self-aware of how ridiculous it is, you know, and you right. see, it, you know, it, look it, it, for a lot of guys in comics, especially it works selling that confidence and that ego works on such a level. You think, Oh, I should do that. But at the cost of what, at the cost right. of being if a fucking used car are, salesman, right. that's not know? who you are. Uh, it's disingenuine. Um, yeah, but you also got to feed the kids, like we said earlier. So finding that balance again is the trick. Absolutely, yeah. All right. Well, I, th- I mean, that was awesome. Um, you can check out more Rick's stuff. Is it rickremender.com? Yeah, I haven't updated that in years. I, you can check out my stuff. Um, I don't know where you can check it out. Well, it's everywhere. I mean, you're one of the hottest writers. Can, in, I'm right hot. Now. I'm on fire. Fire? Just ask me. All right. Well, thank you, Rick. Uh, is there any anything you you want to mention or or talk about before we we leave this? Uh, not that I could think of. It was All a, right. a good uh, a good conversation. All right. Well, thanks for doing it. Thanks, Sean. All right. See ya.
was nice. Cathartic, like a little therapy session for me and hopefully for Rick. You're listening to Ink Pulp Audio. That was Rick Remender. Um, I believe it's rickremender.com. I need to get better about asking these people to pimp themselves at the end of the interview. Maybe I did, and I just don't remember. This was recorded uh, at his home in uh, Newport Beach. I spent a few days with Rick and Lee Lowridge at their homes. They uh, live right down the alley from each other in a beautiful part of the country. Uh, before I went down to San Diego, I went there. My friend Nick Dragata met up with me. I looked for Nick on a future podcast. And we spent some time there. Had a really nice time. Um, it's nice to see Rick and Lee doing so well. They both went through some pretty hard stuff. And came out living in sunny Southern California. And a life, I got to admit, I'm pretty jealous of. It's, uh, it's nice what they have going. So I hope you enjoyed that. I think Rick will be one of those guests we'll have to have back. Uh, again, Sean Crystal, look me up. Ink Pulp, I-N-K-P-U-L-P. Look for me on DeviantArt. I'm also on Facebook. I have a fan page. And I have an active Twitter account, at Sean Crystal. Also, I head the sequential art department in SCAD Atlanta, the finest program in training the future generation of comic book artists. I stand by that. Our faculty is pretty damn impressive. And uh, I'll do a podcast with the uh, faculty and talk about the program more in the future. But it's something I'm pretty proud of. Pat Quinn and I started that program and built it up to something pretty special. Um, So I hope you enjoyed this. Another great installment of Ink Pulp Audio. And... um, I do have a little rant. I, you know, I think I'll try this rant at the end of things. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. I work two full-time jobs. Uh, I'm an artist for Marvel Comics, and uh, like I said, I run that department at SCAD Atlanta. And the, and the, the uh, teaching job gives me health care, which is great. I have two kids and a wife, and we're all covered thanks, thanks to that job. And it's uh, it's tough in this country. I know a lot of people are anti this national health care idea, which is insane. Um, the arts really get strangled by this. It's hard to be an artist here uh, in this society. In uh, when when you have to fend for yourself with something like health care, it's very difficult. It's extremely expensive to pay for on your own. And most endeavors in the art really don't pay very much, at least in the beginning. If they do yield some financial gain, it's later down the road. So it's hard. To choose a life in the arts is really hard, and and most parents um, discourage it. Because how are you going to support a family? How are you going to have health care? How are you going to make a living not knowing where the next paycheck is? I think this holds us back culturally. So I know a lot of artists who just don't have health care. It's a hard decision to make. I understand the passion behind it. Some of them get caught up in a, uh, in a situation where they need help. Something's happened, something horrible, and uh, they need help, and they reach out to the community. Luckily, you've got a real good community that, that backs each other up through um, auctions, Kickstarter, stuff like that. Um, but I'm torn on how I feel about this. I feel like I work two jobs. My life is really difficult in, in terms of my workload. 
I have very little time off. I, I hardly ever have downtime. And it's so I can have this health care and not put that burden on someone else if one of my children were to get sick. So it's I, I feel torn. Is it irresponsible to just say, I'm going to do the art thing, and if something happens, I'm going to reach out for help? I mean, I, I, I like to help people, and I will help people. But it's tough. I, I, I can't do that. I can't say that I'm going to... Uh, Hope people help me if something happens. It's good to have community. So I'm torn. I don't know how I feel about this, but I, I just wish and I hope for a little socialized health care. I think it would be good for everyone, uh, especially the arts, which culturally America is eroding at the core. So let's try to fix that. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast. There's more coming. This isn't getting lighter like the other one, is it? Wait, what's that noise? What is that noise? What? I don't think I like it in here. I can't see anything. Oh my goodness. Welcome to Wings of Fire. What are you doing here? I'm searching for somebody in charge. I'm pretty much someone in charge. Who are you? Glory. You know you're a scary dragon. That's what dragons are. You don't have to be so nasty. I was terrified. I'm sorry. You don't look so scary now. I'm King Candy. You heard of me? No. Sugar uh, Rush. Wait. Are, are you? Why? Why is your name Candy? You're not. You're not a girl. Sounds like an idiot. So, um, what do you? Why are you I, here? I. It's just called me an idiot. Why are you here? You're a sarcastic dragon. <laughs> All right, all right, settle Why down. Are you here? I am searching information. What type of information? I'd like to know if you know who Zoe and Zachary's father is and what comic book he's drawing. You mean Sean Crystal, the one who works for Marvel? Oh, uh, yes, that, that would be the. So you've heard of him. Mm-hmm. You know his work. Mm-hmm. Not too good, is he? He's very good. So what's he working on? I don't trust men wearing tights. T- tights? You, you, you know, with Your a nose looks like a plum. Oh, my goodness. You're awful. You're terrible. Here, I got this stick. I'm going to whip you with my stick. Hey. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God. I'm running. I'm running. Oh, no. Now there's another dragon coming in. Who's this guy? Who is that? This is my friend. And we... Get it! What are you doing? Who is that freak? We. Uh, hey, you want to help me kill him? Get him out of my video game! Ah! Wait, 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 wait. Put your brakes on. I'm not done yet. I'd like to take a minute to thank 
all of my guests I've had so far. You've all been very candid. candid. You've been very personal. You've been very open, raw. You've exposed yourselves in a way that people are responding to. Uh, for myself, it, it's helpful for me to let that out. And I think it's helping other people. But Eric Kennedy, thank you. Sean Murphy, thank you. I know you, you took some real risks. And Rick Remender, thank you. You took a lot of risks as well. And I know you were, you were a little worried about putting some of this out there. I think in the end, and I hope you'll just see positive results from all of this. But thanks for doing this for me. Uh, I guess I've, I've asked a lot of you guys. And you've delivered in spades. So thanks to all of you. I also want to send good thoughts out to Sean Murphy, who had a pretty serious medical scare uh, yesterday. By the time this comes out, um, it won't have been that long since it's passed. I spoke to Sean. He's fine. Um, doesn't really know what happened. Uh, tests will hopefully hopefully reveal, but I just wanted to send good thoughts. And I think if the comics community and just the, I don't know, the culture around comics, people who listen to this can just send some good thoughts Sean's way, I think that would be really nice and appreciated. Uh, I'd like to hopefully see more of that in the future. It's a small business. And uh, I, I was watching a Jay Moore stand-up. And uh, at the beginning, before it started, he was talking about... Uh, I think it was Bob Newhart. Um, well, Buddy Hackett had said there's no smaller club other than living presidents in terms of stand-up comedians. I think that applies for comics. But um, I think it was Newhart who said to Jay, who had a reputation for being kind of a dick... Uh, it's, it's a small club and there's no point in wasting time. I don't remember the exact words here, but there's no point in wasting time getting in other people's way or bashing others. We're just, we're all in this together and it's silly to, to have, I don't know, to have fights. There's lots of egos and insecurities. I, I know as, as you know, from listening to this, but I guess it's true. It's a small crew in the comics club and uh, it'd be nice to spend more time looking out for each other. I'd also like to send a big thank you to Joseph Cooper. He is an illustrator, comic book artist um, who listens to the podcast who I've never met. He got in touch with me over Facebook saying how much he liked the, the show, this podcast. And I got to talking to him and found out he worked for Pal Peralta. And um, I've been wanting to get my son into skateboarding and myself back into it. As you heard at the beginning of this podcast, it was a big part of my life. And uh, maybe it'll make me feel young again or maybe it'll make me realize how old I am when I fall and crack my ass. But whatever it is, Joseph has really been helpful in helping me figure out what to get, how to get it. And uh, all that jazz. So thank you, Joseph. Please do check out his website 
It's josephcooperart.com and give him a shout out. Let him know you, uh, you heard this. So thanks again, everyone, for listening. And this is officially the end of this episode. to start recording yeah I, I, it's recording i don't really i'll tell uh, you what when to record i like to keep it raw keep it I like nice to keep it raw all right Le- levels are good just a couple of hetero friends in an afternoon conversation being hetero knowing each other and talking about your feelings into a microphone Hi. Uh, I think we'll use that. No. No, I, I might use that. <laughs> That's um, your name. <laughs> couple of dudes, they know they're not going to make out until they get the interview over. Well, we, a few beers, who knows what will happen. No, I, I forbid you from using that song. Okay. Um, all right, well, let's start it. Ink Pulp Podcast. I'm here with Rick Remender. Hey, buddy. Hey, buddy. And uh, today, I want to get deep. Uh, I want to talk about anxiety and insecurity because I'm plagued by these things. And I think we have a lot of the same feelings. Don't and drag me down into your cesspool of sadness, dude. I'm, I don't know anything about either of these I topics. I want you to make me feel better about myself. That's no, cool, Sean. I mean... I judge you secretly for your your ability to expose yourself like a raw nerve and talk about these topics. So right. well, this would be a fun a fun conversation as I sit here and silently judge you. Go on. Okay. Well, so I, I have these issues. I'm not sure where they come from. And uh, I want to talk to you about I, – I know it happens at cons a lot. It gets amplified. And with San Diego coming up, the feelings stir up. But outside of cons, it's 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 there. Uh, drawing, but anyway, it's it's always there. So with with your you, where do, where do you think this comes from? Well, I didn't confess to having any of these feelings. No, yet. no, no, I'm telling you, you have you to you draw have this them. out. I'm telling you, you have them. Oh, I do have them. Um, well, I think that for one, the conventions and things like that. A lot of the time, we're working by ourselves. Um, totally secluded and kind of sequestered and it's almost like going to your workplace but you only go 